Ian Murray begins his book entitled The Forgotten Spurgeon with describing the state of the church in the 1800s, in the 1850s in England. And here's how that description goes. The church was not lacking in wealth, nor in men, nor in dignity, but it was sadly lacking in unction and power. There was a general tendency to forget the difference between human learning and the truth revealed by the Spirit of God. There was no scarcity of eloquence and culture in the pulpits, but there was a marked absence of the kind of preaching that broke men's hearts. Perhaps the worst sign of all was the fact that few were awake to these signs. The church was outwardly prosperous enough to be content to carry on the routine of past years. Such was the description of the church in England in the 1800s, 1850s. Convicting? Definitely, definitely for me as a preacher. I have been pleading with the Lord, asking Him, Lord, use the preaching of Your Word to convict hearts. So that the hearts of the people might be cut open. Lord, why don't we see more people convicted of their sin through the preaching of your word? Is it because we expect sermons that will always be uplifting? Is it because we put our confidence in people's power to turn to God? and not on God's grace and mercy? Or are there still aspects of open disobedience in our own congregation so that we want progress on our own terms but not on God's? Is it because we think we have everything we need to grow? As if growth is based on what we have. Are we putting confidence in what we have? Someone commented about a particular church and described it in the following way. Whatever they want, they can do. We can do lots of things with physical resources that God gives us. But without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing of lasting influence. Nothing. Nothing. Friends, do you remember when, the, when Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father? And don't depart from Jerusalem until you receive that promise. Now, I want to remind you something that we've heard already in the past few Sundays here. Remember what these dis disciples have already experienced by that time. They have been with Jesus from the very beginning. They have seen his miracles. They have seen the resurrection. They have seen Jesus physically ascend back to heaven. You think these disciples had what they needed to go now and just start talking about it. 
But all these experiences did not make them and were not effective, were not enough to make them effective. They still needed power from on high. They still needed the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing that gets to the hearts of people, nothing that gets to change the hearts. And we can create excitement and emotions through entertainment. We can do that. There's nothing new about that. We can also draw a crowd here at Parkers Baptist Church through events and services. We can do that. But we cannot make people experience a heart-wrenching, heart-convincing, heart-changing repentance apart from the Spirit of God. And this impossibility is not just at the level of the church, it's at the level of individual believers. If anything of true significance is to happen in our own lives, it can only happen by the Spirit of God operating on our hearts and on our minds. And to learn about the Spirit of God in the church, in the life of believers, I encourage you, I invite you to open scriptures to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Book of Acts, chapter 2. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, one of the red Bibles, you may find this passage on page number 945. Earlier in the week, we encouraged you through our email uh, to read the whole chapter 2 as a way to get a sense of everything that's happening in, in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Today, and in preparing for this message, I realized we're going to spend more than one sermon in chapter 2. Uh, at least three sermons. So today we're only going to cover verses 1 through 21, and uh, we'll ask you for the next few weeks to read this chapter again and again because it's so significant. But this morning we will read from chapter 1, uh, from verse 1 of chapter 2 to verse 21. Here's the word of the Lord, and I am reading from the ESV translation. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others Mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing in with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this 
be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning and for our hearts. The sermon that Peter started preaching doesn't end here. It goes on to the end of chapter 2. We stop here. We'll pick up next time on it. But let's ask the Lord for what we have read already, that the Lord will give us a spirit to illumine us, to help us understand and apply what we will hear to our hearts. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that by descending the Spirit on us, on your church, on the day of Pentecost, you have fulfilled your promises to your people. We thank you for what you intend to do through your Holy Spirit in our midst. And we pray that you would use this time, you would use my words, the preaching of your word this morning to break hearts, to change hearts, to transform us into your image and likeness for the glory of your, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The meaning of Pentecost. We will only get into it today and we'll continue next week. To appreciate what happened on Pentecost, I'd like you to consider two points. And we will spend quite a bit of time at first in the Old Testament to understand what's happening on this day. But two points, the preparation for the day of the Lord. The preparation for the day of the Lord. And second, the presence of God to proclaim His salvation the presence of God to proclaim His salvation. The first truth that we see when we think of the meaning of Pentecost, what does it mean? <laughs> the question of verse 12 that, that the people amazed and perplexed asked, what does this mean? Is a question that we too are asking this morning. The first truth I'd like to point out to you it's the first part of what actually Peter gets to in his sermon is that it's the preparation for the day of the Lord. It's the preparation for the day of the Lord. Now, before we look at this preparation and what happened on Pentecost, on that blessed day, I want us to remember some of the long-awaited promises. Perhaps the, the, the shortest one, the quickest one, is what Jesus himself had promised the disciples in chapter 1, verse 4. Wait for the promise of the Father. But this promise that Jesus had given the disciples has its origins prior to Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist, when he was baptizing the, the baptism of repentance, he was telling people that I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. But this promise of John the Baptist goes back even before John the Baptist. It actually goes back all the way at the very beginning of the life of Israel as a nation. Moses, when he had taken the people out of Egypt, they arrived at Mount Sinai. God had given them the law. God had given them the instructions to build a tabernacle. And now Moses is ready to set camp, leaving Sinai, going towards the promised land. And Moses has a prayer in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. And he says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. How amazing. After the law was given, as they were getting ready to march towards the promised land, the desire and prayer of this prophet of God is that the Lord will bring and give his spirit on his people, on all his people. And then the prophets. We know the story of Israel in the Old Testament. They, fought, they, they failed to follow the Lord. They failed to obey the Lord. They failed to honor the Lord. And instead, they actually brought shame on the name of the Lord. But yet, prophet after prophet would give a message not only of judgment, but also of restoration after the judgment. And prophets like Joel wrote, wrote about what God would do in later times when God will restore His people from the stubbornness of their hearts, from their disobedient hearts. What would God do? Peter reads from the book of Joel, and here's what Peter read. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men and your old men shall dream dreams. In other words, Joel is prophesying that God will indeed do what Moses wished for and prayed for. But what Joel tells us is that this will happen before the day of the Lord comes. It is the last signpost before the great day of the Lord happens that God will pour out His Spirit so that the last days that the prophets were looking forward to would be characterized by this by the following promise, not only that the Lord will pour out His Spirit, but also that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Besides Joel, Ezekiel is another Old Testament prophet who foretells of the pouring out of the Spirit. And uh, the prophecy that Ezekiel gave, we read in the service earlier. Tommy read it for us at the very beginning of the service. But I don't know if any of you have caught on and realized how big of a backdrop that prophecy is for what happens in Acts 2. So I'd like to read it again. I know it's a longer passage, but I'd like to read it again because it's so, so weighty. And listen now to the words of Ezekiel with a backdrop of Acts 2, or as a backdrop to Acts 2. The word of, words of Ezekiel 36, 17, or 16 through 27. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and deeds. 
Their ways before me, and, and get this picture, their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and there were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people had said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And then God gives an incredible promise. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It is through his people that God will vindicate his name among the nations. The very people that profaned the name of the Lord, it is through the same people that somehow God will actually vindicate his name among the nations. How can God do both? Through the same people. How can God vindicate his holy name through the very people that profaned it? The answer is in what God will do with his people. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Wow! This is how the Lord will vindicate the holiness of His name among the nations through His people when the Lord will pour out His spirit on His people to cleanse them to cleanse them of their idolatries, to cleanse them of their uncleanliness so that they would receive a new heart through which joyfully and with thankfulness and with free will will respond to the Lord and walk in His ways. Oh, friends, all of this will be possible when the Lord will pour out His Spirit.
And Acts 2 is the day it happens. It's huge. It's huge. So here's the point. These two prophecies of Joel and Ezekiel tell us about the significance of Pentecost, that the pouring out of the Spirit is the last major event God will do prior to the day of judgment. Joel made it clear that the pouring of the Spirit is part of the package of the last days. So the coming of the Spirit points, uh, the coming of the Spirit brings us closer to the great day of the Lord. Friend, are you ready for that day? But also Ezekiel on the other side makes it clear that the pouring of the Spirit is part of the restoration that God promised to do to His people before that great day of the Lord. A restoration that will take place not in politics, not in socioeconomic realms. A restoration that will take place in people's hearts because that's where the greatest change needs to take place. That's what is the Spirit of God poured out will affect on the people. What a joy it is to hear that God, before the great day of the Lord, God promised to restore the hearts of His people so that they will not find themselves unprepared for that great day of the Lord. This is what the long-awaited promise pointed to in the Old Testament. It pointed to the great day of the Lord and the restoration of hearts caused by the Spirit of God so that the name of the Lord might be vindicated among the nations. Now Luke begins describing the events of Acts 2 by a very interesting phrase. Because all this is a Old Testament foundations for what happens in Acts 2. Luke begins the event by saying, when the day of Pentecost arrived, when the day of Pentecost arrived, Notice that the coming of the Spirit came on a day in which the Jewish calendar celebrated Pentecost. It was already known as Pentecost. Just as Jesus died on the cross on a Jewish celebration called the Passover. And it changed its meaning. It amplified its meaning in even greater ways. So also when the Spirit descends, when the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, it was already a Jewish calendar day. It was already a Jewish holiday. What did it signify? Because I think it points to, it helps us understand better the meaning of, of the pouring of the Spirit. For every Jew, by the time of the first century A.D., the festival of Pentecost had two associations. The first one was the Feast of the First Fruits. The Feast of the First Fruits. God had given Israel three annual agricultural festivals, or three major festivals every year. The first one was associated with the Passover. It was a week of unleavened bread. They were, they were celebrated together, Passover and the week of unleavened bread. And that emphasized and celebrated the re rescue from slavery in Egypt. That was the first major holiday. The second major holiday was the Feast of the First Fruits, which happened 50 days after Passover. And in that feast, the Jews were asked to bring their first fruits of the wheat harvest. It was the first produce of the harvest, 50 days after Passover. And then 
The third feast was the feast of ingathering all the harvest. When all the harvest was now brought in, and the Jews thanked God for that fullness of harvest. The Spirit is poured out on the middle of those holidays. The one that celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. How amazing that God fulfilled His promise to give His Spirit on a festival celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. Friends, the Spirit is indeed a down payment of first fruits of God's eternal promises. Friends, the Spirit enables us to experience a foretaste of all the promises of the gospel here on this earth. Even though we are still sinners until we die, even though we still live in a corrupt world with a corrupt nature, the Holy Spirit gives us a foretaste of all the promises that God has promised for us of being reconciled to God, of being brought back into God's presence, of being cleansed by our impurities and sin, the Holy Spirit creates that for us as a foretaste. But Pentecost had another association for the Jews. The Jews began to associate Pentecost with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And this happened sometime in the intertestamental period. We don't know exactly when and how, but it's pretty clear that by the time of the first century A.D., Jews celebrated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai on this day. That's why on Pentecost Day, a Jewish festival, there are so many Jews and people of all the other nations gathered in Jerusalem because it was a big deal to celebrate the giving of the law. But the law they celebrated was a law that God had written on stone. And now, how amazing it is that God fulfilled His promise to give His Spirit on a day when the Jews were celebrating the giving of the law. But as Ezekiel made very clear, when God will give His Spirit, He will cleanse His people to walk in His statutes and obey His rules. And the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied about was a covenant in which God would put His law within them and write it no longer on stone, but on their hearts. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We don't know if Luke intended these associations uh, with Pentecost, with Jewish Pentecost, to be so evident. Uh, But when Luke starts off chapter 2 with the words, when the day of Pentecost arrived, these two associations were huge for any Jew who would hear them. On the day of Pentecost, God fulfilled what Jesus, what John the Baptist, and what the prophets foretold. God was indeed restoring His people to prepare them for the great day of the Lord. So in this sense, dear friends, we must understand Pentecost was a very unique event. It was just as unique as the incarnation of Christ, as the death of Christ, as His resurrection and His ascension. It was a one-time event in the salvation of, in the history of salvation. That's why sometimes people say, "Well, Lord, give us another Pentecost." It's not really, it's not a good prayer. I know what people mean when they, what they really mean is, "Lord, fill us with the Spirit again. Give us the Spirit in fresh ways." And that is an appropriate prayer for us to pray. But we pray that prayer not because Pentecost didn't happen, so we need it again. We pray that prayer because Pentecost 
has happened and we now live in the day and the age of the Spirit when God has promised to give His Spirit and we live in the last days. So we pray for the Spirit to fill us again in fresh ways because Pentecost has happened. That's the, that's the preparation for the day of the Lord. We are living in the age drawing near to the day of the Lord in the last days. But the second point I want you to, to, to get from, from the significance of, of Pentecost here is the presence of God to proclaim His salvation. The presence of God to proclaim His salvation. Notice three physical manifestations that happen on Pentecost that day. These manifestations will happen a few other times in the book of Acts to point out something else. And we'll, we'll, when we get there, I'll point those things out. But outside of these manifestations, at no other time, at least uh, the wind and the fire, they don't, don't, don't appear. So what's going on here? Three manifestations of the Spirit coming down. The Spirit, in verse 2, a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. It was not a wind, but the sound like a mighty rushing wind. And then the, the, verse 3, the divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. Not fire, but tongues as a fire. And then the speaking in tongues of other languages. Now, before we look at this speaking in tongues, I want to talk about the, the first two, the, the wind and the fire. What are, these, what are these doing here on the coming down of the Spirit? Well, I think it's important for us to realize that these two signs were also present when the Lord gave the law on Mount Sinai. When the, law, when the Lord had called His people to come to the mountain so God will give them the law, he came to them and listen what happened on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke before the Lord had descended on it in fire. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. In other words, these manifestations echo what was going on, what was going to happen in Acts 2. Only that in the coming of the Spirit, the presence of God was descending on His disciples on his people but unlike the old testament where the old testament israelites were terrified by god's presence and asked not to hear god's words now on pentecost the presence of god descends on them through a sound like a, a mighty rushing wind and through tongues of fire to enable his people to speak his words there's no longer a distance and a separation but rather a bringing together now the people of God will be able to speak the words of God. And this brings us to the third manifestation of the day of Pentecost in verse 4, speaking in other tongues. Oh boy, how much ink has been spilled on this topic, right? And we Baptists, we know what this means and we have our beloved brothers in the assemblies of God and the Pentecostal movement who have other ways of interpreting these Verses, but let me let me let me point to you how a, a Pentecostal interpretation would interpret these words. Stanley Horton, a commentator in the Assemblies of God, writes that the tongues here in Acts two um, and the tongues in First Corinthians twelve and fourteen are the same. And um, the statement of faith of the Assemblies of God claims that these are the same in essence, but different in purpose and use. Friends, this is not true. 
It's not true because of what verses 6 and 11 point very, very clearly. And actually, verses 5 through 11 um, points out there's a long list of people, nations represented that came, heard what was going on, and when they hear the sound of the rushing wind, they come to hear what's going on, and they hear these disciples. And in verse 6 and 11, twice, what they affirm is they are able to hear these disciples speak in their own language, in their own dialect. And they're amazed. They're perplexed. They can't understand it. What's going on? So make, verses 5 through 11 makes it clear that the act of speaking in tongues in Acts 2 is a speaking in different languages that are intelligible and understood by the nations of the world. It is not the unintelligible language that oftentimes gets put on the, on the category of speaking in tongues as it is in, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The purpose of tongues in Acts 2 is to fulfill and to give a foretaste of what Jesus promised to them, that they will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And here it is, day one. Slam tank. It's happening. The nations of the world are already gathered in Jerusalem and they're able to witness to Christ already. And Luke emphasizes the extent of the representation of the nations of the world gathered in Jerusalem on that day. The speaking in other tongues in Acts 2 is really a reversal of something significant that happened in the Old Testament in the history of mankind. The, not intelligible, but the intelligible, the interpretive, the understood languages of Acts 2 actually is a reversal of the curse of Babel. John Stott points out how at Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered because they tried to act against God. So God scattered them. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ prefiguring the great day when the redeemed company will be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Besides, Stott says, at Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas in Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended on earth. What a beautiful picture. That's what Acts 2 is about. The mission of the disciples which Christ has entrusted into their hands cannot fail. And this is a foretaste. This is the first fruits of the harvest. Friends, Christ is sending us into that harvest. What the disciples experienced on that day was just the first fruits. It was just the beginning of the harvest season not just in an agricultural way, in a spiritual way. This is the significance of the wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking of other tongues. The Spirit was given to make their witness possible. The presence of God came among them to do this, to use their mouths to apply the Word no longer on tablets of stone, but on hearts, the hearts of the people. No wonder that in verse 37, the crowd hearing Peter's sermon 
we read about them, they were caught to the heart. No wonder. It is the Spirit that applies the Word of God to the hearts of the people to convict them of their guilt, of their shortcomings, so that the Spirit makes possible not just the speaking of the wonders of God and of His salvation, but the Spirit also makes possible the searing of heart which leads people to respond by asking, what shall we do? What shall we do? In the book, This Forgotten Spurgeon, Ian Murray describes the early ministry of Spurgeon in this way. Spurgeon came to London conscious that God had been hiding his face from his people. His knowledge of the Bible and of church history convinced him that compared to what the church had a warrant to expect, the Spirit of God was in great measure withdrawn. And if God continued to withhold His face, He declared to His people, nothing could be done to extend His kingdom. It is not your knowledge, nor your talent, nor your zeal, He would say, that can perform God's work. Yet, brethren, this can be done. We will cry to the Lord till he reveals his face again. All we want is the Spirit of God. Dear Christian friends, go home, Spurgeon would say. Go home and pray for it. Give yourself no rest till God reveals himself. Do not tarry where you are. Do not be content to go in your everlasting jog trot as you have done. Do not be content with mere round of formalities. Awake, O Zion. Awake, awake, awake. Plead with the Lord for His Spirit. Because Pentecost has already happened. Plead with the Lord. Friends, our witness as a church can be effective only if it is done in the power of the Spirit. Only if the Holy Spirit is doing a fresh work among us can we do anything that actually expands the kingdom of God in our hearts, in the hearts of people. Without the Spirit empowering us, we will be doing activity. Don't get me wrong. Without the Spirit of God empowering us, we will be busy. But it will be busy work. It will be work that may, may make us feel good about ourselves. It may be work that may promote our institution, but will have no impact in the hearts of sinners. So friends, Pentecost signifies these two truths, the preparation for the day of the Lord and the presence of God to proclaim His salvation. How should these truths affect us? Well, you can read the rest of chapter 2. You can read what it did to hearts of sinners. Can I say this first? The first sinners the Spirit should impact is us. Those who follow Christ. And the Spirit did impact them. You see how they started sharing Christ with what kind of boldness they started sharing Christ. No evangelism training programs. 
the Spirit. They started sharing Christ with boldness. And then look at the way they are impacted at the end of chapter 2. Look at the kind of community that Spirit forms. At the end of chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship of the believers, the breaking of bread and the prayers. In, in verse 45, they were devoting themselves to each other and being generous. Verse 46, day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received the food with glad and generous hearts. In verse 47, they were praising God. Friends, when the Spirit of God falls on us, these are the side effects it produces. So take these measures and examine your own heart and soul and say, do we need to pray for the Spirit of God to fall fresh on us? I think we do. I think we do. The coming of the Spirit also affects not only believers, those who are still sinners and yet following Christ, but it affects those who are not following Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Friends, sinners cannot respond to the gospel unless the Spirit of God convicts them of their guilt. Unless the Spirit of God convicts them that they are in the wrong. I know it's not positive. I know it's not pleasant. But without the conviction of sin, without a conviction that we have done wrong, acting against God and thus being guilty before Him, we cannot see our need for a rescue. But when we do see our need for a rescue, then and only then we can offer the call in the name of the Lord to be saved. And that call is such a sweet news to our ears. But all of this is possible because of what the Spirit does to write the law of God on the hearts of sinners. Oh, friends, I pray that we would ask the Lord to give us in fresh measures His Spirit. Because Pentecost has happened. It's a preparation for the day of the Lord. And it is the presence of God to make the salvation of God proclaimed to the ends of the earth through His people. As God will vindicate His holy name through His people and through their proclamation. Let us pray for that. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, it is a great joy to hear even babies cry in our midst and praise your holy name for your spirit which has descended upon the church on the day of Pentecost. Lord, I pray that you would make our mouths shout like that. We pray that we would depend on the Holy Spirit in fresh ways. Lord, show us our inadequacy. Show us our bankruptcy. Show us that even when we think we have stuff and we have much, nothing of it is useful and helpful in touching the hearts of people unless the Spirit of God uses our words, our witness, to bring your salvation to the ends of the earth. Lord, use us, we pray to vindicate your name among the nations and make your, holy, your name holy amongst the people of the earth, amongst the people of Austin, amongst the people of Rollingwood, amongst our neighbors. Make your name holy through us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.